Hello there, and welcome to episode number two of the Port AD podcast. In this episode, I'm chatting to Matt Andrews, who is a front-end developer at The Guardian, and who has been involved in the ongoing push towards a fully responsive website. In this episode, Matt categorically guarantees a date when The Guardian will launch the new website. All right, I might have lied there, but he does talk about some really interesting stuff about the journey they've been on. We had a few minor techie issues in the podcast, with Skype going bananas halfway through, then my daughter Lily waking up and she was a bit poorly. Hopefully the edit hides my screaming child from you. If not, consider it just sound effects. Before we press on, I do need to plug the Port AD web conference, which Matt is also speaking at. That's coming up on May the 10th here in Newport, South Wales, and tickets are a paltry £79 plus VAT. We have eight great speakers lined up, so please visit Port AD Events Co UK for more info or check out Port AD Events on Twitter. Okay. On with the show. Okay, good evening, everybody, and welcome to episode number two of the Port 80 podcast. This evening, I'm really glad to have Matt Andrews on the show. You don't know what pain we've been through, <laughs> mostly caused by me to get this up and running. Um, I first come across Matt in an article uh, he wrote last year, because he's a developer of The Garden, does a lot of the mobile stuff, and I'm glad to say that Matt's speaking at the Port 80 event here in Newport in May the 10th. Tickets still available. What, how was that for a plug, Matt? Um, that's a pretty good intro. I'm quite excited by that already. I might go and buy a ticket myself, although I'm fairly sure I'll get one already. But um, I think yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, it's only a... fair that you come for free. I think, or at least yeah. I, I think I should actually pay you, maybe. But... <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is normally how these things work. But yeah, no, it's uh, that's quite an intro. Thank you. Yeah. So thanks very much for coming on the show. Um, tell us a bit about yourself, Matt. What do you do? Okay, so um, my job title is client-side web developer at The Guardian, which occasionally leads to confusion from people at The Guardian who aren't developers who think that client-side means some sort of sales function, like I'm dealing with clients and stuff, which obviously isn't what I do. Um, So I'm a client-side developer working on the front end of the website. So I've been at The Guardian for about two and a half years now. Um, And the most recent thing I've worked on is, as you've said, the mobile website, which we've just relaunched in a kind of responsive way. Um, It's an ongoing project, so it's certainly not finished as nothing is in this digital world no it's not yeah um but that yeah that's that's kind of the, the current stuff that i'm working on cool on the gang well there's a lot of stuff i want to talk about about you know what you're doing on the on the guardian stuff so mm-hmm. in, in terms of mobile but uh, first off you know how did you get into web how did you get to the guardian um good question i mean there's kind of two stages to it so like like i imagine a lot of people in the industry i started out just as a geek just in, in my own time just fascinated by the web when i was a teenager just getting online and realizing i could make my own web pages about all kinds of random were you, a, were you a webmaster um i think i might have been a webmaster yeah i definitely had a geocities page and all the rest of it back in the day so i think that qualifies me it was um it was that thing of sort of discovering, you know, new music and new TV shows and all of that with my friends and being like, right now I want to tell people about these things. So it was kind of when blogging had just taken off and I just got really into that. But then where I differed from my friends is that I wanted to then learn to actually build those pages rather than just use things like GeoCities. So I started to learn HTML, CSS, JavaScript, PHP and all the rest of it. So um, in terms of how that led me to The Guardian, so I went to Leeds University and where I studied English, which might seem a strange choice for someone who's obviously a geek. Um, although I think that it's quite nice to have that balance between the kind of humanities and the sciences. Um, and I was always like, interested in English as well, so I did that. But while I was there, I also worked on the student newspaper. Um, so that kind of relates to The Guardian in that sense. But I was also doing kind of technical stuff there, working on the website and also the design of the newspaper itself, the print product. 
which led me to my first job, which was also in Leeds. I stayed on after I graduated and I worked for a couple of years um, for a magazine in Leeds, um, doing again, doing the website stuff, but also the print design of the magazine. Uh, and then when I decided I wanted to move to London, I saw the job advertised The Guardian, thought this is perfect. Mm-hmm. There's no way in hell I'll get the role. And they must have been desperate and they gave me the job. And two and a half years later, here I am. So, yeah. Oh, fantastic. So did, did you say in that mixed bag of stuff, which you did there, you, you've done print design as well? Yeah, I mean, I, no, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really call myself a print designer because I've had no formal training, as I say, you know, doing English. But I definitely got by for a couple of years putting together magazines, which was really interesting because I'd not done that before. I'd always been messing around with the web, as I say, you know, since I was you know, fourteen or something. But um, yeah, getting the chance to design things like magazine covers kind of gave me quite a nice appreciation of stuff that that did kind of tie in with what I've been doing on the web. So although it was a different sort of form, it's actually really helped me. But it's been a while since I've done anything like that. And I kind of look back at some of the stuff I did back then that I thought was amazing. And now I think, oh God, I can't believe I was getting paid to do that. So yeah, it's, it's a strange one that. And you've done server side stuff. Like you mentioned PHP earlier. So obviously like a lot of people, you've probably had to fight on a lot of fronts and then what did, did you find more of a natural home on the sort of front end CSS? Yeah. Um, I think so. I mean, it, I was always more interested in user-facing code, so you know, front-end stuff that, that the user actually interacted with physically. Mm-hmm. You know, they clicked on things. That that was always more appealing. Um, I do still like to write back-end code, but I wouldn't claim to be particularly au fait with it. I mean, I, I, I think everybody knows a little bit of PHP, even on the front-end world. Um, I've dabbled with Django and Python stuff as well, and I'm fairly comfortable with those. But um, I think when it gets into the sort of academic route and you start comparing you know, the functional programming and NoSQL databases stuff, I tend to lose interest. Like, yeah. I appreciate the the technical challenge and the, the kind of clever stuff that's happening in those areas, but it just doesn't excite me in the same way that things like CSS3 and JavaScript do. I just can't get my head around things like Python. I don't understand the nesting or the lack of what I think it should be closures. And I'm just, I'm a curly braces person. <laughs> so unless I can hit it with my PHP hammer, then... <laughs> Then I'm yeah, not. Yeah, it does a bit of that. I, I agree. I agree. Well, it's the whole th- for me. It always gets me is with PHP. It just it just works. You just write a script and off it goes. But with Python, you have to configure the server. You have to import all the libraries and install all the different things. And the, the bar to entry is suddenly a lot higher, which is probably a good thing to stop you breaking the web. But also means you can't just throw something up quite as quickly as I was used to. So yeah, that, that's what puts me off really. But but I still like it. I like because I don't get to do it in my day job. It's quite fun to have a few side projects where I do get to write back end code. So. Yeah, good, good, good. So, talking on your day job, then, what is your role and responsibility there, then, mate? So, it's it's changed a bit while I've been there, but um, and in fact, it's actually changed in the last in the last couple of weeks, actually. But um, I mean, I've worked on things like the Guardian Facebook app, which I think we've now closed down. But when we launched that a couple of years ago, that was quite a big thing for us. Yeah, that, that made a me. lot of noise, didn't it? There was a lot. It of, did. Uh, I mean, yeah. it, it it was controversial, but it was an interesting project to work on, to, partly because we got to see what working with Facebook is like, which, you know, is, is really interesting. Like, you know, say what you like about how they do things. They're definitely exciting people to, you know, to work with. Um, and that was a quite a cool project for us because we got to see some, you know, we got to see things like Timeline and stuff before that got announced, which was, you know, quite cool. Yeah. Um, so I worked on that. Then I've been working on the responsive site for a while, which is really exciting because it's just kind of taking everything um, that we have on the Guardian website at the moment and just reinventing the whole thing from scratch, which it is in it's in sore need of of doing and it's really exciting to be involved with that and it's just a really great way to kind of question assumptions and just start again with things so i mean that's brilliant and the project i've just kind of moved on to um temporarily actually um is working on the back end um cms that we have so when i say back end i mean i'm still writing front end code but it's it's kind of writing tools for our editors to do things like live blogs and post content on the site 
Um, it's basically rewriting our CMS to be much more kind of 21st century rather than the piece of junk that we're using today. So, um, yeah, that's some of the stuff I've worked on in, in the last couple of months. So where are we at then with the Guardian website and responsive web design? Yeah, so we're... we're I mean, it's hard to put numbers on these things. I, I would maybe say halfway through the process of making the whole website responsive, but I also have the sense that the half that we haven't done is going to be the most difficult half to go. So that's not to say that we're halfway through in terms of the time spent. I don't know. So when we first when we first did the project, we had a, a separate M dot domain for the for the mobile site, uh, separate from the desktop site, and that was actually done by a third party company that was just um, contracted out that the, the, the mobile site, and it and as a result of that, it wasn't very good. No. Uh, it was quite difficult for us to update that, in, both in terms of the actual code of it and the actual content too. So, so the workflow was different from from the content management system. The content management yeah, system. exactly. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, um, so that that was quite tricky, like painful for journalists and painful for developers as well. Um, so it was an obvious thing to bring that back in house, and of course, it was obvious to do it fr- responsively as well. Like this was a good opportunity to do that. So the goal of the project was the first goal was to just replace the M dot site with this new responsive site. Now the goal that the rest of the team are working on is to now scale that site up to replace the entire Guardian.co.uk desktop site. Now that's not a task you can just do in a couple of months. You know, this is a massive website. We've just yeah. posted our you know our biggest ever traffic figures, eighty million browsers a month or something like that you know some it's it's you've got to be very careful doing something like that i mean it's a cliche and people say it of big companies that trying to maneuver them is like trying to turn a battleship and i I think it's true like it it really is and trying to because i mean responsive design really isn't it's not just something that you change a bit of code and everything else follows like it's a kind of institutional thing as well and it's about making the rest of the business start thinking about mobile and how that works and how we, you know, the fact that there's no longer a couple of different views of the content, there might be, you know, a thousand different views of it and trying to get everybody thinking like that. So this is what I mean when I say we're halfway there, but the, the second half is more difficult. And also the stuff that we have on the mobile site today doesn't include things like user comments, which is obviously a massive part of what The Guardian does. Um, we haven't got kind of editorially curated front pages yet they're mostly automated which is you know another challenge um, advertising is really minimal on the page at the moment mm-hmm. we just have a cu- couple of banners but on the desktop site there's quite a bit more and um, there's all kinds of other components of things that we haven't even looked at yet so it, there's going to be a, a large amount of sorting out what we need and what we don't need so that's kind of where we are with the project so there's a mobile site there's still the m dot guardian yeah mm-hmm. but that's responsive so by that you mean it can scale to lots of what devices under a certain width or yeah we've at the, at the moment we've kind of aimed it at like seven inch tablets and below so right. you know um and it in those on those devices at, and i'm obviously biased but i think it looks great on anything bigger than that it obviously still works and it still looks like it's readable it's, it's okay but we haven't put in any multi-column layouts for example or images are currently just being stretched to the full width of the device which doesn't look great on you know a, a laptop screen or an ipad or anything like that um and that's the part that we're still kind of working on now um the other thing is the domain as well. So we actually got some criticism when we launched because, we're, you know, we're saying, look at our new responsive site. And people are saying, well, it's still an MDOT site. So how is that responsive? Yeah, yeah. Because I, I remember that's how we first sort of met. There's lots of questions yeah, yeah, about yeah. that. I was trying to get my head around it. And yeah. And it, it is an interesting one. In fact, we had one guy who went away and wrote a blog post about us saying we were jumping on the bandwagon, which was a bit a bit hurtful because, you know, we know how long we put into that, that work. And we also know that it's not finished. <clears throat> I mean, and that's the thing I think people have to remember. Like, it, it's, you know, using an agile process you don't have this big bang release where we spend you know two years rebuilding the guardian from scratch and then launch it and find out that it's going to fall over because we didn't anticipate something the whole goal is that you know we're going to replace a really big site with a small site at first and scale that small site up so 
you know, we've experimented with set sending traffic from um, Guardian.co.uk desktop onto the, the, the new MDOT platform that we've built. And it's held up surprisingly well, which is really exciting for us because we've completely changed how we've done all of that. So it's, it's not something you can just rush into, even if, even if the tech work itself wasn't so complex. Um, but the plan obviously is to replace uh, the www site with this new responsive site. But we didn't want to wait until we finished all of that work before we could get a sizable part of our user base actually on the site. So that's kind of the strategy. But I, can, I suppose I can see how people interpret that and think, well, that's not strictly responsive. And I guess well, yeah, but you, but yeah. you do explain that it's like a step in the road just sort of to get there. But when do you think the WW will be, that there will be only one? I think, I mean, don't quote me on this, but I, I think the I'm end gonna of quote, the... I'm going to quote you on this. <laughs> okay, quote me on this. I think definitely, no, probably. Um, well, the end of this year is, is approximately our goal. Like, with, with, you know, 2013 is going to be the year that Guardian.co.uk goes responsive. Wow, wow, wow. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say. And, and like I say, some of the challenges that we've got ahead of us, you know, we've not really started to address yet, things like ads and things like that. So there's a lot of, a lot of unknowns, really. Um, but I'm confident we can do it. The team who are working on it are really, really clever. There's some absolutely top-notch people at The Guardian who are looking into this stuff. So I'm confident that, you know, based on the success rate we've had with the MDOT site, and just, just to plug that slightly, we've had 100% uptime since launch in November um, we've deployed new versions of it about a thousand times, like in terms of the code base. And just to put that in context, the number of deploys in the equivalent period for the desktop site is probably, oh god, about twelve, maybe. Are they are they currently hosted separately? Is it like a different architecture which you would be migrating towards, or? Yeah, exa- exactly. That, and that's why we had to kind of test that out. So the old site was actually, well, I say old site. The current Guardian.co.uk is actually hosted. Uh, and now this isn't my area of expertise, so my colleagues might hear this and cry at how wrong I'm getting this but I think I'm right in saying there's a there's a data center inside the Guardian offices in King's Cross in London um, which hosts the site and then there's another one in Bracknell which also has a kind of mirror of, of that architecture so between those two we serve the entire Guardian infrastructure and in fact we also serve the uh, Guardian America website off that infrastructure as well which obviously means that for uh, international visitors there's a bit of a delay there so that that's tricky so one of the things we aim to do with the new mdot site is completely move all of the infrastructure onto amazon onto ec2 okay um, which is what we've done and now the site lives i think it's in the dublin uh, the dublin island somewhere uh, uh, ec2 there but we'll be able to move that around so if we do want to open up um uh, data centers around the world now we can use amazon's infrastructure to do that which is brilliant uh, but obviously, that for us, that was an untested thing. So we had to make sure it could handle, you know, the approximate fifteen to twenty percent of traffic that, that we have that just goes to mobile uh, before we throw it in front of the entire Guardian audience. I suppose that'll be a lot of stress taken away as well. That you know, let Amazon do the scaling, and you guys concentrate on what you need to concentrate on. Yeah. Yeah, that's it, really. I mean, w- I mean, that's not to say that when we f- finish this process, that we'll close down our own data centers. I think there's loads of other things. Yeah, yeah. We need those for and loads of applications that run, you know, within the website that are kind of separate from the actual, what we call the fr- what we call the front end of the site. So not front enders in uh, like client side code, but front yeah. enders of the part that the users actually interact with. All of those applications, I think, will, will probably live on EC2 because they're they're the core of what we do. But the, you know, other services like the user commenting platform stuff, they'll be. I think they'll probably stay internal. So it's it's a case of well, as with everything, it's a case of compromises and working out the balances. So I think we've we've got the the kind of structure in, in place for that, which is really exciting. Sweet. Okay, can you just clear something up for me? What What am I seeing on beta.guardian.co.uk? Okay, okay. Well, that's a recent change as far as, far as I'm aware. What happens is 
Um, and it's almost like a model of what will happen when we actually launch for real, like completely responsively. But if you go to beta.guardian.co.uk on a mobile device, you should just see the responsive mobile site. If you go to that URL on a desktop site, you should get the Guardian desktop site. Ah, yes. That's what I was seeing. And I just thought I'd get you to clar- clarify that. Yeah, yeah. So that's quite a new, a new change. And, we've, and obviously, as the domain name suggests, it's, uh, it's, it's a beta thing. So we're kind of, that's kind of our, our bleeding edge users, the people who are really kind of big Guardian nerds who want to see what we're doing. They can go to that URL and they will always see the most current version of the site. And in fact, we actually soft launched it on that domain before we moved it to MDOT. Um, and we put a bit of traffic through it there as well. So it's, if, if you're interested in seeing the latest stuff that we're doing, that's definitely a good place to try it out. Um, and I think when we start experimenting a bit more with desktop uh, in terms of the design, I think that's probably where you'll see it as well on beta.guardian.co.uk first. Okay. Um, a question which I, I'm always trying to struggle with, see if I can sort of um, phrase this well. How do we go from the content? So in this ideal world, we've got one URL, yeah, on, on the homepage. Yep. Mm-hmm. How do we serve up loads of content on the wider desktop one where we might have banners, we might have lots of sub-nav and all that stuff, we might have longer articles and all that kind of stuff, and how do we show a more shrink-down version on the more mobile site? Okay, so, I mean, so there's again, there's loads of stuff in, in that question. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's what I could now... It's whether you believe that a mobile version should have a shrunk down, you know, content or shrunk down components, like e.g., you know, should you be hiding things from mobile devices, you know, or should you just be delivering different things to them? I mean, in the case of things like advertising, it's kind of quite obvious that you should you don't want to, you know, send a massive wide banner to a device that can only display 320 pixels. That, sure. That's straightforward. But you know, in terms of content that users want to engage with, there's no there's no reason at all why you should be delivering different stuff. You might want to represent it differently visually, but for example, that user comments, like that's not something that, that we've deliberately left out of the site. It's just something that we didn't prioritize for launch, but we, they will be there because we don't want to say, oh, well, people on mobile don't deserve to be able to interact with the Guardian's comments section. Um, so in, in terms of how we've approached that technically, because, um, I mean, there obviously are cases where you do want to load different things for different devices. We don't do any server-side detection um, of what device you're on or anything like that. It's all completely done on the client side um, once you're actually onto the page. So... We'll detect things like the screen width and then figure out which uh, advertising slots to show you based on how wide you are. So actually, we do have a kind of first stab at responsive advertising. If you, if you do yeah. load um, m.guardian.co.uk in a, a desktop browser, you will see ads that should be sized appropriately for a desktop. So you so do send the width back to the, to, to, to the back end? To the, to the ad server, yeah. Well, yeah. well, yeah, we have a number of uh, ad slots, basically, that, that take different width things. So we basically populate those slots dynamically in JavaScript once the page is loaded and we know how wide it is. So, sure. yeah, so the ad server doesn't actually know what the user's browser is. Well, we're not telling it. They just know we've said we want an ad that is X pixels wide. So I suppose it's the same thing, but it, it, it's, it's more the point that we pass all of that onto the client. And we also wait until all of the core content that, that we consider integral to the page is loaded before we start doing any of that. So our, our idea with the, the new site is that the stuff that's kind of core, so, you know, on an article, it's, you know, your headline, your picture, um, yeah. the navigation those things will always be there regardless of anything else. So the worst case you know, scenario, all our other servers go down, you know, all our galleries break, oh, uh, right, the football yeah. pages break, you will still be able to read like a core piece of content even if all the JavaScript's gone. You know. And that's really important to get that right because you know, we do have traffic uh, periods where the whole site goes into emergency mode because we're just getting too, too many hits and there's, maybe there's a live blog that a lot of people are hitting, you know, things like that. So we need to be able to stand up to that kind of traffic. So building so the site responsibly. You've almost got tiers of service there, and so you've got a bit of graceful degradation in how the whole thing unfolds, I suppose, haven't you? 
I mean, well, not so much graceful deg- degradation, but progressive enhancement. So okay. it, it's, it's, we're saying we're going to start with the fundamental basics. And we have this rule that in terms of the back end of the site, we only make one blocking request per, per URL. So if you hit a Guardian page, we make one request to our, our content API, which gives us back you know, the, the article content. Um, but we don't make any other requests for things like you know related content or and you know other components that go with that thing. We do all of those asynchronously after that page is loaded, so the user doesn't have to wait around for things like, well, as as I say, related content, which is you know quite a slow um, algorithm to process. We do all of that after the page is loaded, and we go off and fetch that via AJAX. And we think that's really important because then, as you say, there's that tiered kind of thing. So even if those services break, they're not going to stop people doing the thing they came to the page for, which is reading the content. Sure. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, a lot, the, a lot of the approach to many sort of mobile sites, obviously, is that as it gets a little, uh, websites for responsive design is that you know, as you sort of, as it gets a bit more narrow, your columns sort of just drop beneath. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, that's on a very simple site. On a very complex site like The Guardian, like you've already mentioned, there's lots of different content areas. I suppose it's going to be a lot, quite, quite, quite a, maybe a different sort of processing route for, for that content to be de- delivered as we start to shrink down the uh, screen sizes, yeah? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's whether, I mean, it's that class, there's a good gif that kind of has been going on on Twitter to demonstrate this, but there's that thing of when a site comes out that's responsive, everybody just sits there resizing their yeah, browser yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, on their desktop, you know. <laughs> and, you know, we're not, we're not building to that use case, so we probably will have the situation where if you loaded it on a desktop and then shrunk your window down, it might not, you know, gracefully sort of collapse everything or things might not disappear quite in the way that they would if you just loaded those pages from scratch. But, you know, we're not too worried about that. Um, but, yeah, it is difficult. I mean, it's a design challenge as much as anything else to kind of look at. I mean, I mean, code, We, you know, we can work it out. There's, there's plenty of options there. But in terms of how do you build a site as complex visually as The Guardian and then yeah. make that also work in a single column, which, again, is, is why building it mobile first has been really helpful for us because we've just stripped out everything that wasn't core to the experience and only put back in the things that we really need. And now as we scale that up, we're, we're questioning everything that's already on the site today and we're not necessarily going to, you know, well, we're not going to rebuild all of the things that are there currently. So we wouldn't necessarily have had that power if we'd started with the Guardian desktop site as it is now and tried to scale that down and make it responsive. It would have been a nightmare trying to work that process out. But by doing it the way we're doing it, it really makes it easier to kind of to make those priorities and, yeah. to, and to think of the design in terms of distinct modules rather than a whole page that has a certain set of components on it. You just think of each component individually and you work out how that scales. And hopefully the rest of it just fits into your structure, your grid, or whatever it is that you're using to, to lay things out. Sure. Cool. That makes a lot of sense. Um, something I was mulling, right, is that obviously we're going to enter a world where we're seeing slightly different content or different versions of it off off the same URL. I, I wonder what Google make of all this. I mean, in olden times, they were always pretty strict on, we want to see exactly the same content on the same, mm. you know what I mean? And it's sort of, we can't always have that if we're going to start displaying down to a tiny screen, up to a, a large screen. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, when we first started the project, um, almost a year ago now, actually, um, we sat down with our two SEO editors at The Guardian and we kind of told them what, what we were planning to do. And we, we were saying, well, what, what, what are the, you know, the search engine implications of us doing this? Because, as I say, our, our concern that the core content is always there is obviously good in the sense that Google will always be able to index um, you know, the article headline and the image and the body text, which you know the most important things um, for us. But it might not be able to index things like the related content or the popular content or the things that we load in dynamically after the page is loaded. Now, Google's getting, getting clever at that and getting better at crawling um, AJAX data. Uh, and there are ways you can kind of 
mark that up to Google and tell them what that thing is. And again, because we're trying to build from a progressive enhancement sort of way, a lot of those things are still visible. So even if you don't have JavaScript, we have links on the page so you can go off and read the most popular content or the related content. Um, you just don't get the sort of nice, pretty tab navigation that we build in for the clients who do have JavaScript. So there are ways to do this, but I agree, it's it's a bit of a mystery. But I mean, Google always say build things in a way that's good for users. And that's the whole point of responsive design, really, to put something there that that works for whatever the context is that the, your your user is on, rather than just giving them one or maybe two kind of kind of boilerplate, you know, one size fits all options. So hopefully, you know, Google will, will go with it and it'll work and it'll all be fine in this brave new world that we're all going towards. My feeling has always been that Google only want relevant, interesting content to be to to be served up. They're not there to try and catch people out. I mean, obviously, they're constantly updating how they do stuff, and they must be well aware of this new world which we live in. Yeah, you know? you'd think so. Well, I mean, they're building more and more of their own products responsively, so you can kind of assume if it's good for them, then they're pretty happy for everybody else to be doing it. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's fine. Well, it's already an issue which they're seeing, and I suppose this is a topic I was going to come on to, is that, I mean, responsive images are different sizes, aren't they? So if we want to be pedantic about it, they're already seeing different content at different kind of... Um, yeah, from, that's, from, very, that's very true. From, from the same URL. So I'm um, talking of responsive Im- uh, I- images. How are you do- How are you handling that at The Guardian? On, so we've, on- not got, we've, we've not got any kind of crazy um, innovative method that nobody else has ever done before. We've just got a fairly kind of standard one of just having uh, data attributes on our images. So by default, all of the images on the page are kind of low-res thumbnails, which get scaled up in CSS to um, full width. Um, and then we basically have a data attribute on each of those images that points to a higher res version. And we go through and just replace those if a number of conditions are met. So I think basically we detect the connection speed um, that the user is on. And if it's over a certain arbitrary point that we say is fast, then we upgrade the images, um, which basically allows for the use case where some, somebody might be on a laptop or an iPad with a wide screen, yeah. um, but they're on public transport or something using 3G or they're on a train or something on the really shit Wi-Fi. Yeah. Um, so it means that they just we're not saying that just because someone has a wide screen we're going to give them wide images we're actually also tying it to their network connection which I think is quite important really, because equally you might be at home on your iPhone but you might be connected to your Wi-Fi so actually you can download um, ha- uh, massive images um, so we don't punish you for being on a small screen we still give you nice crisp high-res images so it takes a couple of things into account we're kind of limited in that regard because at the moment the um, so the Guardian has a, a content API that we use um, which I should just shamelessly plug. It's free to use. You can go on there and get access to all the Guardian's content, so you can definitely go and check that out. But uh, the API offers all, all of the images, all the different sizes that the editors upload into the CMS. But the biggest size that we get for those images is uh, 460 pixels wide, which obviously isn't that big. And that's only because on Guardian.co.uk, the article template that we use is 460 pixels wide, so it's fine for that context. But for anything bigger than that or anything different or retina dis- uh, displays or anything like that, it's not really enough. So we've actually got some work going on internally to kind of give us the, the full-size images, like literally you know, 2,000 pixel wide um, source files so we can do our own crops and kind of figure out the images a bit more uh, in a bit more of a nuanced sort of way compared to how we this kind of binary that we've got right now. Because I think, um, yeah, that, that's great, man. I mean, the, I, I specifically asked about that because there just seems to be so many different um, ideas about responsive images now. I think there's... Finally, some um, common sense going through the W3 with a lot of the proposals, because I think um, Andy Davis is going to speak about this, the whole responsive images at, at Port Eddy, because I've seen some, some of the techniques which first came out. Was it the Filament Group who worked on? Yeah, they've really pushed this. It's, it's really cool. I think 
they can definitely take credit for um for the I think developers almost as a whole who are interested in responsive actually getting involved with the specs the first time and actually trying to contribute to like W3C groups and actually you know offering a viewpoint on how the markup should work rather than just kind of being told this is how it's going to be people are actually you know submitting proposals and really getting behind it which is fantastic like that that relationship is is how things should be working so it's it's great to see that uh, and you know whichever one of those specs comes out i think it's it's been you know a lot of attention's been paid to that to get that right which is fantastic for us and in terms of um in terms of the guardian's kind of user profile for the people who access the mobile sites we've got something like um 50% iphone and then something like 25% high end android and then there's kind of a long tail of like blackberry and yeah, a few yeah. nokias so, so if this markup does come out for responsive images <clears throat> Um, 75% of our user base are on a pretty new version of WebKit, so we should actually get those kind of updates available to us pretty quickly, which is brilliant, compared to uh, on Guardian.co.uk for desktop, where we still have quite a high percentage of people still using things like IE 7 and 8. Well, maybe not so much 7 these days, but 8 still 9%, I think. So Really? Yeah. Well, it's just a long tail, isn't it, around the yeah. world? Like, you know, there's different countries that push the usage up of these things. So, But mobile, it's actually a lot quicker, and, you know, we know that people upgrade their phones more frequently than they do their browsers, so... There's not people locked onto old versions of IE for years, which is brilliant for us. You mentioned just then about um, monitoring people's bandwidth so you can sort of you know, alter the content accordingly, whether that's images. Is that something you guys, like, have you, you've brewed your own service or do you use somebody else to do that? Is that, I mean, that, um, that again, is a bit of black magic, isn't it? It is. I think definitely the first time I heard about it, I couldn't believe that it was it was something you could do today and, you know, something we could put in production, but, but it is. Um, it's actually a new HTML5 API. It's actually built into your browser. If you go to your, your browser right now into the console and type in window.performance, um, you should actually see all, all of those methods available to you. And you can see things like the, uh, the response start and the request start and all these different timing APIs that basically tell you things about when the user initiated the request and how long it took for the browser to come back with something. So, that, again, they're all available on the client side. There's no need for kind of server interaction there. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, it's 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 a little known thing, but it's 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 becoming more and more used. And as I say, because our kind of device profile is is pretty high spec, you know, most of the browsers that we support actually uh, have that feature already. So it's great. Yeah, and the other it's, nice it's thing, in WebKit then and all that kind of stuff. Is yeah, it's in WebKit. I think Firefox has it as well. Because um, the nice thing is about the way we've built the site is that we have a, a bunch of tests for JavaScript support. Uh, which to kind of determine whether we we give them the full experience or they just get the kind of the basic experience. Um, so if the browser doesn't doesn't support those kind of timings, then they're not going to get our responsive images anyway. So it's kind of like a oh, that's cool. Process. You've even got a hurdle for that as well, then. So yeah, yeah. Well, we we kind of um, we, we kind of were inspired by the BBC, who've got this th- on on their responsive mobile site that they're working on. Um, they've got this method um, of what they call cutting the mustard and they basically test whether the browser cuts the mustard or not and they have a bunch of tests which I think are quite similar to the ones we do. Check for things like local storage support, um, uh, push state I think and a few other things, Uh, query selector support, all native to the browser. If the browser has those things then it gets the kind of, I think what they they've described this to upper management as the HTML5 version of the website. And if it it doesn't have those things, they give it the HTML4 version, which actually is, we've used that to kind of talk to quite senior sort of managers and and they kind of get what we mean by that rather than talking about JavaScript and WebKit. Yeah, that's not going to get anywhere that conversation, is it? It needs to be, yeah. So it's it's been quite useful that, but it you know we've kind of adopted that same approach. So again, like you say, that this tiered approach to the site, like it it does mean that some users on I think Internet Explorer eight and possibly IE nine as well as I'm not sure won't pass our test, so they'll just get the site without any JavaScript. But you know it's still functional; they can do everything that they need to do on it. 
um, and it still looks nice. So that's that's a benefit from the current site. Cool. Um, so you said you're sort of it's much more very much an agile kind of environment. But are there any particular milestones or anything looming on the solar calendar which you know is going to change in the next couple of months? Which uh, for for the Guardian website or is there a particular co- component which has got to be translated or fixed or? Good question. Um, I'm trying to think what I'm allowed to talk about. <laughs> yeah, there's def- there's, I mean, I can be a bit mysterious and say there's definitely something quite exciting coming up, although I've not been involved with it and it's not connected to the responsive project directly. Um, but there's quite an exciting bit of work that's due to be released um, pretty soon, yeah. actually. So I can't really say more than that, but keep an eye out for that. I'm very, sure you'll very, hear about it. Very mysterious. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> um, all I, can, I mean, in terms of the, the kind of responsive site, all I can say is keep an eye on um, beta.guardian.co.uk because the, that's where the interesting stuff happens. Like I know that we've got uh, designs in play and I think already some stuff in code as well for, for dealing with larger screen sizes. So we're going to start doing a bit more of that adaptive sort of layout where columns start moving around and things change as you scale up, which we don't currently have. So I can't give you a date for that, but I know quite soon I would say you should be able to see that on a, on a browser near you. I do like some of those CSS multi-column techniques. I think they're lovely. They're really exciting. And again, it's kind of been something like traditionally we'd have looked at that for guardian.co.uk and said, that looks great, but you know, not all of our audience will support that. But on mobile, we can actually say, well, quite a vast majority of our, of our audience will support that. And because we've kind of got this tiered approach to the site, um, it means we can seriously consider techniques like that. Like, I mean, the, the fact that you, that, that uh, web timings API was like a new thing to you. It was a new thing to me. Like, you know, last year I'd not heard of it. And then suddenly uh, Andy Hume, one of our um, front-end architects, kind of showed it to me. I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And then it was the realization that we could actually use it. It was brilliant because uh, on guardian.co.uk, on the desktop site, we kind of have to support everything kind of of consistently. Yeah. So the site needs to look and work the same in IE6, as, or it used to when I first started. Uh, as it does in you know Chrome 26 or whatever we're up to. Um, whereas with the, uh, the mobile site, we've got a bit more flu- uh, fluidity there between support, so we can experiment with new things like this, which is really, really exciting. Cool, and so perhaps we'll just check a few questions which um, came in on from the old Twitter land. My mate, Simon Kukane, one of my oldest mates who lives in Virginia now working for Con- uh, Computer Associates, he came in with a question. Does the Guardian have any automated QA for its target mobile platforms, or is it all manual? Over to you, sir. Okay, that's a great question, and I think one that more and more people need to start thinking about if they aren't already, because um, it's obviously a massive challenge to you know, to maintain that, that testing kind of environment. Um, so there's a really, really good blog post that we have about this that I'd recommend anybody interested to go and read. And if you just go to guardian.co.uk slash developers, um, you'll get the Guardian Developer blog where we talk about some of the stuff that we're doing, uh, not just on this project, but others. And we've got one on there by Andy Hume, who's our front-end architect, and it's called Real-Time QA, and it's about this exact process, and it's about this exact project as well. Um, so it's kind of sum up what Andy talks about in that blog post. Obviously, there's a massive overhead uh, of testing on, on mobile devices, and we do have a cupboard full of um, a ridiculous array of different phones and tablets and all sorts of other screen readers and things like that, um, e-readers, I should say. Um, and we also have a UX lab that's just in the process of, of being built, which is also going to have a more formal version of that. So rather than just shoving them in a cupboard somewhere, we've got a real place to test things. Um, that's not enough, though, and it's, it's quite difficult to automate that. And although we do have a dedicated QA resource on the project for testing, um, we don't uh, we move too quickly to kind of let let one person be that bottleneck and we, we don't work like that uh, on this team. So we do have a bunch of automated tests. Um, there's some integration tests, obviously, when we, uh, when, when we code locally. But when we actually merge things into the master branch, 
Um, we just have a bunch of unit tests that run when we get to our build service. And then after that point, they get automatically deployed, assuming that they pass the tests uh, into our code environment, and which is kind of an internal thing that we don't expose publicly. But the idea is that as soon as we've committed some code to master, we go off and see how that worked and we test it on devices ourselves. So there's a bit of developer responsibility there to check that your thing does work. So, for example, I, I built the, um, the Guardian uh, mobile galleries that we have, which are kind of they're probably the most responsive thing on the site in the sense that uh, if you load them on something with touchscreen support, you can like swipe through them. If you load it on something with a keyboard, then you can use keyboard nav to go through them, things like that. So it was kind of down to me to kind of check that they actually did work in all the different devices, along with our QA as well, who was obviously on my back about things that I failed with. Um, but the idea is that not everything has to go through the QA before before it gets into production. Um, as well as that, with the automated testing, we also have a lot of monitoring going on. So um, if you were to see the kind of area where my team sits, you just see a kind of complete uh, load of monitors just around where the desks are. And those monitors are just displaying stats about how the current um, metrics for the app are, are running. And we have one that just shows JavaScript errors on the site, and we log all of those. So we can basically see if we make a deploy of the app and those JavaScript errors go up, then obviously something's gone wrong and we need to pull things back. Um, and this isn't actually a new technique. Um, it's actually quite quite an old one. It's just known as real user monitoring or RUMP. Um, but it's something that we're doing. So it kind of means rather than trying to test every eventual outcome and every possible thing that could go wrong before you put stuff in front of users, you kind of satisfy yourself that you've, you know, best effort and then get it out there and see how it performs and monitor it from there. It's a, bit, a lot more realistic and it means we can actually get code in front of people a lot sooner than we did in the old world. So, yeah, that's our process. Yeah, I think the world now, especially in all those sort of different devices, you just cannot be testing everything as it... <laughs> You can't be sort of testing every device before you reach a line of code. I mean, it's just got to be... No, it doesn't scale. No, it's got to be continuous and an ongoing thing. And you'll just put processes in place to adapt and when um, when issues are, are raised so you can just deal with them as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we've had one persistent bug with Blackberries, for example. The browser just crashes and it's been really difficult for us to fix that because we can't reproduce it. Um, it's so sporadic that we can't really tie it to any one thing. It just seems to be a general thing and maybe it's a problem with BlackBerry, maybe it's not. Um, but this process does mean that we can at least see that happening. But we don't, it's not a barrier to us launching the site because it, it only happens every now and again. So it kind of frees us up from worrying about things like that too much. But of course, you know, you're going to you're gonna have to adapt it to it. What is it, the, the Z10? Because I mean, surely there's going to be loads of those visiting the website. Yeah, well, actually, the thing that's, that's probably most interesting is we just uh, we just got given um, a bunch of uh, Chromebook pixels on Friday last week, uh, this week, sorry, um, after Google announced those. Right. And using one of those is really interesting because obviously it's a touchscreen device that also has a keyboard. So um, for things, in fact, things like our image galleries that I just mentioned, um, they actually get picked, they fall into the, the logic branch that says they're a touchscreen, even though it does also have a keyboard as well. And there's a lot of UI things that are written like that that kind of assume one or the other, but not both. But actually, this does have both. So people are going to have oh, to nice. rethink that again. So now having a touchscreen doesn't automatically mean you don't have a keyboard as well. So I think I think we're okay, but there's probably a lot of applications out there that make assumptions like that that are just not going to be true a- anymore. And that, that's why responsive is so interesting. It's just you don't make assumptions, but you you make you you, you make it good for the user, whatever the user's context is. It's great. Mm. What do you make of the Pixel device, by the way? It's it's interesting. I mean, it's it's cool to use. Like, it looks nice. It looks a lot more high end than the uh, the Chromebook. Um, I don't think I'll buy one because I think over a grand, it's quite expensive for yeah, what it is. It I seemed mean, like a high price tag. I thought, wow, it, bloody hell! It is just a browser, like you know, because 
I mean, Google are touting it as a developer thing, and I think it, it could work. I mean, there's, there's certainly things like Cloud9 IDE, which is like a web-based uh, text editor that you can use um, for code, which is great. And in theory, that, that might be enough to get, get by with. But I wouldn't be able to run The Guardian's uh, mobile site uh, on on a Chromebook or, or on a, a Pixel because I won't be able to run all of the Java kind of back end, well, the Scala back end I need to, to do to power that. And even though it's a it's a Linux box, you can't really get access to the underlying terminal, or not very easily, as I understand it. And a lot of it's locked down, so I'm not sure. Unless they open it up a bit more, I don't see how it is going to take the place of something like a MacBook Air or a MacBook Pro. Um, yeah, and and also the fact that if I'm spending that much money, I actually would quite like to be able to, you know, play some games on it as well. That I can't do in a browser. Maybe Google's argument is that eventually we'll do all of those things through a browser, but maybe not in 2013. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's, it's more of an indicator for the future. If I was spending a grand or so, I'd be down, down the Mac store, you know, the Apple store. There would be certainly other things I would be spending on rather than one, than one of those. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it's rare that Google make mistakes with, with, with their, their products, like their actual, you know, their, their Android phones and their Android tablets are, are all brilliant. So I'm going to watch it with interest, but I'm not, I'm not quite convinced. I think at some point next week I might be giving it a try to see if I can spend a day using it as my work machine rather than my Ubuntu box, and you know I'll see how that goes and report back. But I'm not, yeah. I'm not quite convinced it will work. But we'll see. Good plan. Okay, let's look at <clears throat> add another question. We had it in from Ellie Stringer. Uh, we sort of covered this, but I'd be just interested in what your short take on it is. And Ellie says, mobile or desktop first? Does it make a difference? Um, it definitely, definitely makes a difference. Um, and I'm in the mobile first camp and. You know, if I wasn't before, I'm definitely a, a convert to it. Having you know d- built a site that uses that approach, um, it it just means that you it forces you to rethink things. And there's already been loads of stuff published about this, but this idea that you should budget for page weight as well. I think Clear Left had a really good blog about this, um, and as well as just having a budget for how much your project's going to cost in terms of money, you should also have a budget for what how much you know data you're going to send down the pipe at the user. And starting mobile first makes that a really important thing to address. Um, and it's enabled us to just make loads of decisions that we perhaps wouldn't have done with the luxury of designing for Guardian.co.uk where we can throw you know, megabytes worth of data at all the users, but we actually we don't want to do that for a mobile device. But there's no reason why that doesn't benefit people on a fast connection either. Like It's still good when a website loads fast, even if you've got the bandwidth to download more. And mobile first kind of puts that in perspective a bit more. Um, again, things like HTTP requests become so much more uh, important to limit when you're on a mobile device because the overhead of actually doing that round trip there's so much more, so it's to kind of force you to reconsider that as well. Um, it just it just puts everything in perspective and brings us back to a web that's that's quick and responsive, you know, with a small R, if you like. Um, and yeah, I think I think it's how it's how everything's going to be done in the future. I mean, it's not to say that mobiles will always be the way that we'll, that we'll consume the web. I'm sure in a few years something else will come along that will change everything too. But it's more about questioning our core assumptions and saying just because someone does have a massive, you know, fiber optic broadband doesn't mean we, we can throw 10 megabytes of data down the pipe at every single user. It, it just doesn't scale. So it certainly sounds like you got your work cut out there at the Guardian then, mate. It, there's quite a bit to do. I mean, it's an, it's an exciting time to be there because there's, there's loads of things that we're fixing. And as I say, the success, the fact that we've had this brilliant uptime since we launched um, suggests that we've, we've got things right and the user feedback's been really good. Um, and we're getting rid of a lot of things, legacy things that we need to throw out. So it's it's like, it's, it's a bit like knocking down your entire house and then building it again from scratch. I mean, it's a big job, but you can fix that cupboard that never quite closed properly or sort out the dodgy boiler, you know, and all. I'm sure I could drag this analogy out for ages. <laughs> I'm going to stop now. But Sorry, was that, was that a, a, an analogy? I thought you were actually, <laughs> <laughs> actually breaking down the building. No, okay, fair enough. Something like that. But yeah, no, it, it's, it's, uh, it, there's a lot to do, but 
as I say, the team that's working on this is really, really good, and there's some really passionate people on the project. So it's, I think it's going to go really well. Yeah. So what are you going to talk about on the um, old Port 80 talk coming up in, in in May, mate? Yeah. So I mean, what's quite interesting about that is that because the talk's still a couple of months away, there's you know there's a lot of things that are going to happen. You've done now nothing. And then. You're saying yeah. you've done nothing. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to wait till the week before and then try it. <laughs> Well, what I mean is by the time the, the talk rolls around, we might actually have launched something that shows um, a desktop kind of view of the content. Maybe not a finished one, but maybe something a bit more considered than what we have today. And that'll be a new thing that we can talk about at that point. But I don't know yet. You know, obviously, it's a, a long uh, couple of months ahead of us. Um, but in principle, talking about how we began a task like like taking a website like guardian.co.uk and making it responsive, like, you know, how do you approach that when you've got a big content site? You know, you've got to get that right and it's not easy and in fact it's impossible to just take everything that you have and bring it with you and I think it would equally have been impossible to just take the existing site and write a bunch of CSS to try and make it responsive it, it just wouldn't have worked so I'm talking about how we began that and the kind of things that we made sure we had baked in from the very beginning that have turned out to be really valuable for us and likewise a few things that we wish we had had baked in from the beginning which you know now we're learning we should have done so hopefully even for people who don't run you know websites with millions of pages of content it's still going to be relevant if you're thinking about rewriting your site in a responsive way cool that's that uh, sounds very exciting one question was just sort of popped in into my mind then do you sort of have like content strategists on your team or do you have sort of people who fill similar roles or has that been sort of part of the equation when considering responsive that's a really good question. Um, I don't think we have any, as far as I know, anybody in the organisation whose job title is content strategist. But I mean, the smart ass in me wants to say, you know, we've got a floor full of journalists who are all yes. to content strategists. You know, maybe not all thinking about it in that way, but we definitely have like groups of, of editors who, who who think about things in a sort of wider sort of sense. So, you know, rather than just distinct pieces of content, they think about how the site as a whole represents that content and how we structure it and share it. And we're actually, the team's actually in the middle of some discovery work right now, which is looking at that very question of how we group together information and content. So, you know, The Guardian's a news site, it publishes news stories, but at the moment we just kind of dump those into a CMS and they get put out to the user and that, that's kind of it. And we try and work out similar stuff based on tags but we think there's a lot more clever stuff that we can do with that about structuring that data and about relating content in ways that users can see a kind of uh, narrative or a sort of timeline if you like of, of, of events obviously this doesn't work for every type of journalism but no. for news journalism the sense of a story having you know beginning and a middle and end and development and key events and all of that we're looking at how we can do that so i guess there's a kind of content strategy thing there. yeah it's so it certainly sounds what you're describing then is that whole journey from blobs into chunks of content yeah, exactly. That, that's yeah. We've actually been using some of those terms ourselves. It's it's quite interesting to to kind of challenge ourselves to think about that a bit more, especially because you know we're developers, so we're used to thinking about you know data models and stuff like that. Yeah. But then when you kind of throw journalism into the mix, it becomes a lot more complex. And there's always edge cases that you never think of. And you know it, it's quite interesting to talk to different journalists about how that process works. Um, but it's definitely something that, that we're thinking about and that we're quite keen to push with. This is when I, when I say that responsive isn't just about you know making a bunch of code changes. It's an organisational change as well. And it's about working with our colleagues in editorial to kind of get their heads around what they can do to change that and how they can rethink their approach to it as well as how we rethink our approach to code. So everyone benefits, but it does mean, yeah, there's a, a lot of work to, to get that right. Yeah. Well, I certainly look forward to sort of catching up and finding out how things are going with you on on, on the garden, and uh, be interesting to see what you've got, got got to say in in May. But I think we've covered about what we needed to cover for today. And I think, uh, given yeah. the, given the technology has gone wrong a few times, <laughs> I, think, I think we will quit while we're ahead. And um, shortly, yeah. one final point I did want to make: I noticed on that um, Guardian blog, yeah, the developer blog, the article yeah. which I first found, 
You're you're wearing a shirt and tie <laughs> on that. <laughs> do you, yeah. is, there, is that like some sort of is it like some sort of formal dress code of the guard? Do all the do all the developers and designers wear yeah, that? There, there, is, there is a there is a uniform. We all wear smart dress shirts at all times. No, um, it's it's terrible. Everyone takes the mic out of me for that. And it's it's brilliant that, uh, that that you're doing it too. It's fantastic. Um, further further reason that I need to update that picture. No, it's um, when I first started at the guard, I needed to get a byline picture to, for a blog post I was writing. And the only like smart picture I had of myself, or the only recent picture, was one from a wedding, and it was just, I was like, "Shit, I better just send this to the picture desk to sort out." Um, yeah, and I've just never got around to changing it, so it looks ridiculous. I definitely don't wear a shirt or a tie to work. <laughs> it's definitely more smart than anybody at work has ever seen me. So, um, yeah, I'm, I promise I'm not going to appear like that at Port Eighty. <laughs> yeah, we don't do ties in Newport, mate. <laughs> <laughs> we, we wouldn't know what to do do with that <laughs> okay well look thanks very much for coming on the show we had a few little technical glitches but we managed to s- somehow get o- over those including my daughter who managed to climb up from bed so she sat on the sofa o- o- over there but we managed to sort of uh, navigate that as as well so there we are so I will let you get back to your Sunday night thank you very much thank you it's been a pleasure thanks again for listening to the Port Lady podcast we've got some great guests coming up including Steve Robson, who'll be talking about what it's like to transition over into the crazy world of freelancing. If you've got any questions for that podcast, please blip them over to the Port Daily Cherub via the appropriate interweb channel. Finally, don't forget, get your ticket for the Port AD event coming up in May. Visit portadeventsco.uk for more info. Cheers. <laughs>